Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or you may be found us on the podcast, you found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not already. My name is Stefan Hostetter. I'm here with Lauren Latour. Hey, Stefan. How's it going today? Pretty well. I'm going to say I'm going to go very well, actually. Excellent. Love that for you. Yeah, but we are here, as you may have noticed, with a special show. Because when you hear my voice first, you know that it's a special show because it's an all-interview show. And we are here, very excitingly, with two wonderful activists and organizers, Katie Perfit and Stephen Thomas, who are the clean electricity campaigner and the clean energy manager with the David Suzuki Foundation. Thanks so much for being here. So excited to be here. Yeah, I'm and we're gonna have to be you back too. Yay! And we're gonna have you with us for a full hour to talk all about clean energy and clean electricity and the ways in which they overlap, or the one all, thing, all of it, all of it, it's all be of great. it, all, all the clean it. energy, all the all the clean electricity, and and the campaign that you guys have launched recently. Correct? Yeah. I mean, have kicked off, but has been underway for many years because mm-hmm. we need to acknowledge that Stephen has been the ultimate clean energy researcher nerd for a while (laughs) and doing a heck of a job too always a lot to talk about with clean electricity stoked about it awesome yeah so folks uh, if you listened to the show before would have heard steven's voice before katie is a is a new guest welcome so much thanks for being here and before we get into the the nuts and bolts of the conversation we want to take a second to acknowledge the connections between both the two of you and Lauren, actually, and the divestment movement, partially because I think you guys want to give a shout out to some people who are doing some great divestment work, but also because I think it's useful to sort of track back how people get involved and move through their future and or move towards activism over their careers. So can you tell us how you two met and the story behind that? Well, I can I can start things off. So, oh my gosh, where to even begin? The first time I ever met Stephen was on a bus to Power Shift in Ottawa in 2012. And actually, I don't even know if we met on that bus, but I remember being feeling like kind of a new activist kid on the block. But Stephen was like fully entrenched in the like youth climate organizing scene in Halifax where we were living at the time and so like I kind of I I put Stephen up on a little bit of like a pedestal along with like a lot of these other really cool folks who were doing climate organizing work but then it wasn't until we got home after coming back on the bus from Ottawa from Power Shift that I actually got to like meet Stephen and then for several years after was you know part of this ragtag crew of folks at Dalhousie University calling on the university to divest from fossil fuels. So that's how I remember meeting Stephen. Stephen, I don't know if you want to share more about that time, that moment in our lives. This is already a lot of fun. And I think it's so important, like the relationships you build in this work are the, for me, the only thing that keep me in this work. Stephen, you ask folks at the end of, I think, every interview, like, how do you like sleep at night how do you like do this work and and find any semblance of of hope and it's really like these kind of relationships so being able to work with and collaborate with Katie and Lauren to over the last 10 10 years now 
is such a such a gift. But right away, like I was really impressed with Katie and the whole crew that we were organizing with at Divest DAO as well. And I look back to the kind of like organizing structures that we had, the kind of ways that we were able to build trust with one another to do big things as like some of the best organizing I've been a part of. I think when we, it's sometimes you think about it like you graduate out of your student organizing years, which is true to some extent, but then you arrive in professional organizing spaces or you become a professional advocate or activist. And you realize like it's missing some of what student organizing can offer in terms of it being really real, really trust-based. And for me, like so, so rooted in justice. So I've been saying on interviews for a while that like, I'm just like a youth climate justice activist who's aged out of, who's just old now, who's just aged out of being a youth climate justice activist. But that's so my tradition and Katie, you and, and Lauren have been such a big part of forming that for me. So I'm excited to to keep up these kind of chats. I love how immediately mushy this got. I'm really, really happy about it. Oh my yeah, goodness. This is, we signed up for clean electricity, but we're sneaking in a side dish of feelings here. It's great. Mm-hmm. And now we're all just kind of old people Wait. now, hearkening what? back to the days of yore. Totally. And like, it's so funny you say that, you know, you were like, you're still a young activist who aged out of the youth climate space. But like, yeah, I remember like it wasn't too long ago. But, like I was like approaching my 30s and it was like I had to have a real reckoning of like, I can't be calling myself a youth activist anymore. I can be a supportive, you know, I can play a supportive role in that, but I'm not a youth activist. But what I was thinking of, Lauren, when you started speaking was the first time I met you, I think it was a lot around like Energy East organizing. There was a big thing happening in the city. And I remember you walking up to this park in Halifax, you walking up to me and I knew who you were from like Twitter and just being online and knowing that you were a part of divestment organizing at your university but i remember you walking towards me and i'm i think you were wearing like light like acid wash jeans and like a leather jacket and i remember just thinking like how cool is she and i still think that my gosh i'm blushing i remember meeting you then too because i remember you had your your puppy then at the time bean and you were just like yeah I was so impressed by you too. I remember, I think, I don't remember if I met you at PowerShift Atlantic, Stephen, or if I was just aware of you and I didn't actually meet you until a little bit later, until I think maybe the Montreal divestment convergence. But yeah, no, like when you said almost 10 years at this point, yeah, it's been almost 10 years that like you two have known each other for a couple of years more than I've known either of you, but it has been a long time. And yeah, like something you said just about like, we are all paid organizers, paid movement folks in some capacity. And when it does become your like your quote unquote nine to five, it does kind of lose a little bit of that heart. And I also find it's harder to hold on to one of the things that I loved so much about youth organizing is it was like rigorous and it was exciting and it was iterative and it was also like deeply creative and deeply generative in a way that sometimes it's really hard to hold on to once it becomes like the thing you're paid to do and the thing that you want to like sign off of and close your laptop on at 5 p.m. But Maybe we can get into that a little bit later, Katie, when you're telling us about sort of like the ins and outs of, of the campaign as you're kind of publicly carrying it forward over the next little bit. But, yeah. I don't but know. If I can ask one more divestment related sort of question to the, to the three of you before we dive in, because I think I am the oldest person on this call, I'm realizing. And so I 
just missed divestment organizing and was more involved in pipeline organizing. But two weeks ago, we had on the show the folks from Climate Justice U of T talking about their, they occupied Old Vic for 18 days and got them to actually move on the issue. And of course, Vic did not indicate that that was the case at all. They were like, after years of consideration, it's like totally ignoring the fact that you haven't had access to your building entirely for the last 18 days. And of course, that had nothing to do with it. Sure. Anyways, but I'm curious, those folks could be listening to the show. And given your experience aging through into your next stages of life, what would you say to these people who are doing campus organizing right now? I would just say, keep it up. Like there's so much work to be done. And the work that young organizers are doing in a lot of different issues is so invigorating and just I think it, it has been a reminder to me and I think a, a reminder to a lot of people who are in this work of just like the stakes are really high and just the the commitment and the fortitude of those young people holding that space for as long as they did was really amazing to see and and to say too that like I, I feel this and I hope a lot of other folks who have done divestment organizing in the past decade is that like this feels like all of our win too. And I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to take away from what you know, what they did and the commitment they made. But what I mean by that is just that like in our when we were divestment organizers, we were some of the first, we were part of some of the first campaigns in Canada. And that was at a time when the Paris Climate Agreement hadn't even been signed yet. And there were people on our board of governors who even doubted that climate change was man-made or, you know, created by humans. And so, so much work has been done by young activists, by activists of all generations to get us to a point where these kinds of wins are more possible, even though they were common sense even a decade ago. But yeah, just to say that, like, so much work has been done. And I remember when we got our no from our board of governors at Dalhousie University, we were really intentional about celebrating what we had won at that time, because what we had done is created a kind of pressure cooker in our community around talking about the implications of investing in fossil fuels. Like everyone was talking about it. It was in all the newspapers, you know, all students on campus knew who we were. And so, yeah, just like wanting to celebrate this moment and this win. And it made me think a lot about all the work that has been done. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about. But just like kudos to those students. Wow. Yeah, kudos to the folks at, at Vic and U of T who, who just got that win. And shout out to the folks at Divest Dell who are still trying to get Dalhousie University to divest from fossil fuels. The same ask that Katie and I were working on 10 years ago. Goddamn, like st- 10 years in, the university really has to has to start listening. But for me too, like I would hesitate to tell students these days how best to do their thing. They're brilliant. They're way better at this than I was when I was in my undergrad. And I think that's a very, very good thing. I think like, keep that in mind. And for the students who are celebrating wins and, and really teaching from and learning from one another right now, just be intentional about passing that forward to the, to the younger folks in your, your circles, because this work won't be, won't be over when, when we graduate. But I, I'm such a huge fan of the work that, that folks are doing now. And that like intentionality of training one another up really comes from the labor movement and comes from indigenous communities who've had to do this forever and ever. So we used to say in the theme and in the thread of when Zapatista and Chiapas first were doing their thing in the 90s, 
that the first Zapatista were the worst ones. And that wasn't to say anything about how like revolutionary and amazing those those first wave of, of Zapatista were, but to say that they have things to learn too and they, they want to create a world that's better for the generations that come after. And we used to say that the first divestors are the worst ones when we were doing that sort of organizing too. And I'm just so stoked that that's turned out to be true. Like the youth climate justice work that's happening now is so much more fulsome and so much more rooted in solidarity, which is such a such a good thing. Well, and it's just so amazing that they've been able to sort of pick the momentum back up from that kind of like momentary COVID lull and been able to retain those skills and retain that knowledge and and teach each other new and exciting things when when they were off campus for years, when when some of them, they didn't become full time regular like attending class living on campus students until relatively recently. So the fact that they were able to, I don't know, like maintain that activist spirit and build the relationships that are necessary to do this, like really in-depth organizing all within a condensed period of time is incredible. So yeah, like what Steven said, I don't actually know that I have that much to tell them. I, I guess except the only thing is sort of riffing off of what we were all speaking about earlier, like Remember that, like, the relationships that they're forming now in those little, like, affinity groups and these activist hubs and these divestment organization circles that they're part of in university, like, those relationships don't go anywhere. Those people don't go away. The the friendships that you're forming now will continue to support you and will continue to be there throughout sort of, like, as as you age out of youth youth organizing circles, especially because here in so-called Canada, like, it's a small pool of progressive organizers. So don't burn any bridges. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much. This has concluded the feels portion of the show. We may return to it at some point later, whenever we feel like it. But for now, we're going to do a music break and then we're going to come back and discuss clean energy and the budget and a whole bunch of other things. We are going to go to what our featured artist this week, who is Andy Schof. So this is Wasted on You by Andy Schof. And thank you so much for letting us use this both on the radio show and on the podcast. Really appreciate it, Andy. And take it away.
Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not. My name, if you're just tuning in, is Stefan Hostetter. I'm here with Lauren Latour, Katie Perfit, and Stephen Thomas. Katie and Stephen are with the David Suzuki Foundation. You hopefully know who Lauren is. And we are here to chat about the budget and clean electricity or energy, depending on who you ask. To you, Lauren, for the next question. Yes, because we have two such experts here, we thought, although the budget's been out for a couple weeks at this point by the time listeners are tuning in, would love to sort of get the Coles notes, Sparks notes, however you want to frame it, rundown on what you saw as being beneficial when it comes to clean energy and the clean electricity transition in so-called Canada coming out of Christy Freeland's most recent budget. And then maybe if we're feeling like we want to get negative, what what was lacking, what still needs to be worked on, what we still need to see improvement on. Maybe I'll go to Stephen first. Hey, yeah, thanks for the, the chance to dig in a little bit more on on the budget. For me, it's so hard sometimes to celebrate a win. And it's so hard to like protect joy, even if it comes in a small amount. Because these wins are are rare in this work. We talked before about like how long some of us have been doing this and how like gut-wrenching it can be to to not have a win to celebrate, to not like acknowledge how far we've come in a way that doesn't feel hollow too, because we we want it so badly. But for me, I think there is something that's pretty genuinely worth celebrating in the budget on this this specific topic of clean electricity. But it always comes in this sandwich. Like for me, you have to acknowledge all of the terrible things that come on both ends of this. But I think it's important to acknowledge the win too, 
for me, and we'll, we'll talk about this, I think, more in this conversation, but it's because I think we have a role to play in this, or we have some credit to take in this federal budget in 2023 having anything to do with clean electricity or clean energy or climate. It's the demands of, of people across Canada that have kept the pressure on, that have kept the government to do in its own way something on climate that we're materially closer, I think, after this budget to winning this target of 100% clean electricity across Canada by the year 2035. And I think that's a good thing. I think like we have so, so much more work to do. And I, I think a lot of the conversation today too will focus in on the how, on who benefits and who owns it and how these things roll out. But I think it's worth taking a beat and realizing that we're closer than we were before to actually having this be a material reality where Canada has no fossil fuels on the grid in 12 or 13 years from now. And the things that I hope this can unlock for all the other work that we're doing on climate too. We do so much important work on all sorts of different files that, that you have folks here talking on the podcast about. Clean electricity is just one part of that, but I think it can be like a first mover. It's like the first and easiest sector to decarbonize and to electrify. So I hope that the wins that we have in this corner of our climate work can really like translate into some momentum, some hype, some hope for the other super important fights that are happening there too. And I always try and say that because the the work that we get to do and is a privilege to do on solutions, working with communities to make this real and an actual solution for them in their everyday lives is super important. And I think like good for your soul, but it's to take nothing away from the crucial work that folks are doing on the front lines and disproportionately indigenous communities and communities of color who have to do this work on the front lines to say no to the god-awful projects that just won't stop being proposed all over this territory. So for me, it's both. But if we can focus a little bit on, on the clean electricity piece, it's, depending on how you slice it, tens of billions of dollars for clean electricity that I believe materially change the likelihood of whether or not we actually meet this goal, 100% clean electricity by 2035. It's $13.2 billion in an investment tax credit uh, that are eligible to clean electricity. Much smaller amount here, just $1.15 billion in direct funding over the next five years. And depending on how you slice it, 10 to $20 billion in loans. So I know you and others have really criticized that like it can't all just be tax credits. It can't all just be market mechanisms. And it certainly can't all just be loans. We're talking about a transformational like physical infrastructure thing that Canada has to do here in the next decade or two decades. And that's going to take funding. That's going to take direct public money for direct public projects that are publicly owned, that are owned by Indigenous communities, that are owned by community co-ops, that can't just all happen on its own in the market, so to speak. But just that amount of money, I think, brings us closer. And we have much more work to do and many more fights to fight on how it rolls out, on ensuring that there's Indigenous ownership of these projects, opening the door to co-ops and community ownership down the road. And that's what that's what I'm excited to do. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll follow that up to say, like, one of, one of the people who's been working on the clean electricity team for a while with Stephen, her name is Lisa, she was saying just how remarkable it is to see this much investment in climate solutions in a federal budget. And this is goes along with what I said, you know, before, where 
10 years ago when we started this work, we the Paris Climate Agreement hadn't even been signed yet. But there were no climate investments in federal budgets for so, so long. And now we're seeing this this really big shift. And so I think myself included, like the climate movement has to get a lot better at celebrating our wins, even if it comes in a shit sandwich, as Stephen said before. And then I'll just say, like, I think one of the things that is a big opportunity for investment and not just for the federal government, but for provincial and municipal governments as well, like we need, you know, all the public money possible going to this is the piece around energy efficiency, because that's how we're really going to make life more affordable for the people who are feeling the pinch the most from the rising cost of living, which has been fueled by the fossil fuel industry. And so the folks at Clean Energy Canada did a really good job of pointing out this gap in the federal budget, you know, despite there being a lot to celebrate like we just didn't see a lot of investment or any maybe in energy efficiency measures and supports for especially for low-income households and so and that's where we get to really see the you know reduced energy consumption in our day-to-day lives that's where we get to see the actual reduction of energy bills for people's households is when we just use less energy and electrify the energy we use. So that was definitely a missed opportunity, but one that I think we get to continue to organize around to make sure it happens. I love that. And that quick point you were making about that you both made about like declaring real wins versus those hollow wins. I feel like there's something there. We don't necessarily have time to dig into it, but would love to chat about that at some point. The only follow-up I have is just around um, that sort of that definition of clean energy is something that I can't quite remember. I'm sure we talked about it when we were initially talking about the budget a couple episodes back. But Stephen, can you speak to how like how tight and how consistent with sort of a movement understanding of clean energy is sort of the government's budgetary understanding of clean energy here? Is there room for like fossil fuel Trojan horses here to to take some of those clean energy dollars? Or yeah. are you feeling confident? So. Even before we talk about electricity, like fossil fuels got pretty much everything they wanted in this budget. They continued with the suite of fossil fuel subsidies that they've enjoyed for many years. They got new fossil fuel subsidies for things like hydrogen that's derived from fossil fuels or carbon capture for a variety of fossil fuel projects. And that's true here in the electricity sector, too. And funding for fossil fuels is the meat in this sandwich in a space that should be preserved for what we consider to be really beneficial and what truly are the cheapest option available to us, renewable electricity like wind and solar and the things that make them possible like energy efficiency, transmission lines, and energy storage. All of those things should be getting tons of money. But in this bucket of money that we have for those those solutions, in that same category, fossil fuels are also eligible. So specifically, natural gas with carbon capture and storage can access this money as much as it likes. There's no cap on it. They can just spend the money and build the plants, which is exactly the opposite of what we need in this moment. Every new piece of fossil fuel infrastructure is a mistake today. That's been true for years. Canada still hasn't got that message, not in any other sector, and unfortunately, not yet in the electricity sector. So as we talk about the campaign, we talk about this overall work of getting to 100% clean energy by 2035, that's still like a really big risk for us is all those extensions, exemptions, and loopholes for fossil fuels. 
in this target. And that's that's still true here with this budget. So definitely something we got to work on. Cool. And then one last budget question before we move on, which is just around if you were prime minister or if you sort of had the ability to do this, what would you do? Like, what would you, what other stuff would you add to this that you think that would really bring some solid change? So our pie in the sky ask is direct funding, not loans, not market mechanisms, and not not only tax credits, but direct public funding for the projects that bring the most benefits to communities and to communities who have been like otherwise done wrong and harmed by our existing energy infrastructure. So frontline communities in oil, gas, and coal communities, certainly indigenous communities across so-called Canada, low and middle income families and communities. And there's a great group of equity deserving folks who who won't benefit from a tax break, who won't benefit from a tax credit in the way that some corporation may. So direct funding, tens of billions of dollars. And in our budget ask, we had $20 billion over five years for that sort of direct funding that has this focus on communities, on co-ops, on indigenous-owned projects, and things that bring those benefits with it. On top of that, what we think is a clear role for the federal government to play here too, is upgrading the grid. So the problem that we're trying to solve here in Canada with this big energy transition is, is two problems. And we've talked a little bit about this before, but not only are we trying to take all the fossil fuels off of the grid and replace them with clean things like wind and solar, but as we electrify, as we move away from using fossil fuels in our cars and in our buses to electricity in our EVs and in public transportation, and the same as we move away from fossil fuels, like burning, burning fossil fuels to keep warm at home into high efficiency heat pumps and electricity, all of that takes a lot more electricity. So we have to do a lot to upgrade the grid, nearly double the size of the grid as we're cleaning it up. And that costs a lot of money. That too is going to be tens of billions of dollars of grid upgrades and transmission projects that aren't the sexiest thing, but are super important to make sure that the lights stay on, that we have a reliable electricity system, that we improve the grid that it's usually 60, 70 years old in Canada. And we actually like deliver good benefits to folks. So, so that's definitely where we want to see more of the focus next year. Awesome. Okay. So now that we've got the sort of bunch of stuff settled and what place the, you know, and the hopes for the future, the conversation needs to sort of shift into how do we build sort of the support for this kind of work? Because it's a lot of work, you know, even as you said, doubling the size of the grid, that's a ton of construction. There was a conversation we had, I think a year ago now on the show around this idea that like, you can't go home again which was basically on this idea that like the world we are living now won't exist because we have to do so much work. There's so many transmission lines getting to get built. There's so much construction that has to happen. And all of that will come with disruption. And people don't like disruption. And people get scared still, I think, a little bit of the ways in which clean energy became synonymous with more expensive, especially in the early 2010s. And I, we had a really hard time, I think, on, on battling ourselves out of that. And so when you're, you know, as, as two people at the forefront of doing this kind of communication, what are the best practices and how should we be talking about this as we move forward? Stephen, do you mind if I take the first kick at this? Because just your, your answer to the last question, Stephen, where you were talking about just the immense work that is ahead, 
Like to me, that makes me think about all of the people in my community who would benefit from the kind of work that this kind of transition is going to create, whether you're someone who's in college to become an electrician or you want to be a linesman working outside. I mean, there's just so many jobs that are possible with this energy transition. And so for me, that's the thing I think about first is like, you know, the fossil fuel industry likes to scare us into this kind of story that we're going to have to go back to the Stone Ages when the reality is we actually, there's so much that our communities get to gain from this transition. And like, I want to see that for my community. Um, I want to see people being able to work in their communities, building up this really resilient energy grid. And what you said, Stefan, also makes me think about the multiple storms that we've had in the past year where our power has been out. And whether it was the more recent ice storm or before that, even longer before that, Fiona, like we are in for disruption, whether we like it or not. And the question I think we need to be really posing to people is, in the face of these disruptions that we're seeing, are we going to allow our grid to stay the same and just be battered by climate impacts? Or are we going to invest in it, make it smart and make it resilient so that we actually have a better chance of of being resilient in the face of climate, climate impacts? and yeah, I think, you know, the situation that Fiona left in on the Atlantic Canada, but also these ice storms that we're we're seeing here in Ontario, it really poses that question to us. Like, we need these investments, whether we're going to make our grid better or keep it the same. And so I don't see why we wouldn't just make it better. Yeah, that's the bottom line. Like, what we're talking about is a better way to do things. What we want is a better world. And we really believe that when we have renewable energy for all, we have a better world. Like for those in the back, like moving to 100% renewable electricity for everyone is better for our health. It's better for energy security. It's better for affordability for everyone. It comes along with good jobs where you live in Canada across supply chains. We're more collaborative between communities, between provinces. We depend on each other in a good way to do hard things and to, to support each other. But we don't need like miracle technologies. We don't need, you know, we talk about nuclear fusion or, what, or whatever's down off the horizon. But what's so beautiful about this moment is that this is something that we can get to work building like tomorrow if we only got out of our own way. Or I should say more directly, if the fossil fuel industry would only get out of our way. So this is something that not only is like a better way to live, a good future, something that the David Suzuki Foundation believes, but it's something that like everyday folks can and should be a part of and interface with. This is this has the opportunity to be an energy system that's much more democratic, much less centralized around big utilities and one or two or four like big energy plants, to instead have tons of community and indigenous ownership of all sorts of diversified energy from wind and solar and energy storage and all sorts of things that you see in your community that you're a part of. You own a part of it, or your neighbor owns a part of it, or your nation owns a part of it. We're going to interface with energy a lot more in the way that we produce it. But I hope the way that we interface with energy and the way that we use it becomes a lot better too. So when I talk about affordability, when we talk about health, like 
clean energy is a solution to the, the problems that we're facing right now. Like we keep having conversations about how much folks are struggling for the basic need of just like turning the lights on or heating their home or like they're making the decision about whether or not they like freeze in their home or if they feed their kids or if they are able to afford their medication. And that's just terrible. The solution to that problem is not more fossil fuels. The solution to this problem of energy security, of the volatility of prices, can't be to depend more on like market-driven fossil fuels that are the most profitable industry on earth. It's so painful to see oil and gas companies pretend to give a flying about human beings when they are so, so much to blame for for the bottom line of of the inaffordability that that people are struggling with over over the last year. Um, so to, to put a number on the affordability piece, maybe and to calm down with how upset I am about oil and gas executives, energy security is really really key at the home level too. And what we mean by that is things like energy efficiency. Katie brought this up in a really good way, I think. When we talk about heat pumps or we talk about electrification. It's really like, hopefully what people actually feel from that is spending less on energy, which this whole thing has every opportunity to deliver for them and being more comfortable in, in your home, not having to make the decision about whether or not you turn up the thermostat or are like unhealthy in your home, too cold in, in the winter and too hot in the summer on the basis of cost. That's what we, we hope to get away from when we talk about the technical bits like heat pumps and retrofits and, and all that stuff. To maybe bring one more little story into it, I live in BC. My first summer here in BC was the summer of 2021 when the heat dome happened here where 619 people, probably more, lost their lives in just a few days when we had record temperatures, the hottest temperatures ever recorded in Canada here in the lower mainland of BC. Those 619 people, 98% of those people who lost their lives died at home. And disproportionately, those folks were people who couldn't afford an air conditioner or a heat pump. Those are folks who lived in public or low-income housing. Those are folks who, who couldn't afford to be safe from the kind of climate impacts that, that are coming for all of us. But it's, these are tragedies that can be avoided by much better and smarter use of energy and actually showing up for people who need it. So, so these, are, these are sort of the the things that I feel are at stake when it comes to health and affordability. As much as I love wind turbines and solar panels, and as much as I believe in the, the, the benefits that come with renewables, the real human side of this is so, so important too. Thanks for getting into that. So pivoting a little bit, but in terms of like how it is that we go about sort of like winning this beautiful future that, that you were both talking about, and listeners now know that you both have extensive organizing backgrounds. And Stephen, you talked about the wins that we saw in the budget and even just sort of riffing off of the idea that that like we need like the democratization of our of our energy systems going forward. How has popular support gone into sort of getting us where we are now in terms of the, the wins that we've seen so far? And then what is the role that organizing plays in like furthering this this agenda going forward? I can kick things off. So when I was with 350 Canada, which was not too long ago, I recently transitioned to work with Stephen over at David Suzuki Foundation because of how exciting this campaign is and just like how pivotal of a moment we're in around the energy transition. But when I was at when I was at 350 Canada, got to do some in-depth analysis of like where the Canadian public is at in terms of 
their perspective on climate and the solutions to the climate crisis. And one of the things that we were able to kind of distill out from a lot of public polling that has happened on climate in the past couple of years is that, and I think, you know, if we just like look around, we can see it everywhere. Is that like generally people really believe that, A, that climate change is real, like that debate is over. And generally people want to see our governments take ambitious action to tackle the climate crisis. Where it gets confusing for people, though, and I think this has a lot to do with a lot of the misinformation that is abound from the fossil fuel industry, from the nuclear lobby, from a lot of different sources, is what actually a real justice-based climate solution looks like. And so I think the challenge for, for us, and I say us, like I think Stephen and I and the, you know, clean energy team at DSF, but also folks across the country who are doing climate work is like, we have to make climate solutions much more real for people in their lives. And I was recently at a gathering in Ottawa where there were some organizers from ACORN there and ACORN does really great anti-poverty work and they're consistency based. And one of the things that they were saying is the cost of energy is really coming up as an issue for people on the doors. And it made me think about this campaign. I think it's in New York where this climate organization that does equity-based climate organizing was literally giving out induction burners to people who are renters who live in places where their cook stove, or, or not cook stove, that's a, that the thing you find in the cabin, but their stove and oven are gas stoves and ovens. They, they're giving out these induction burners as a way to overall reduce the energy cost for that renter. Um, and that's because electricity, generally speaking, is less expensive than your gas bill or that your gas would be on the bill. So to me, that is just such a tangible way to think about climate solutions. And, and I think we need to make it more real for people is that there are really these clear solutions that are possible in our homes, but also at a, you know, at a wider scale. Like we need our government to be investing at a mass scale in, in, in real climate solutions, not these, I forget what you call them, Stephen, but not like these schemes of climate solutions, not these false solutions, but like the real ones like wind and solar. Solar energy and wind energy is free and it's abundant and it's limitless. And I think that's something I have to remind myself as well, even as someone who works on this file, is like, we actually have a free source of energy. Not that the technology is free, but like the input is free. <laughs> There's nothing more inexpensive than that. So yeah, I, I think that's one piece of the puzzle is like, we really need to make the solutions more clear. Yeah, for sure. And so we're just going to go to a quick music break, and then we will come back to chat about the strategy that y'all are employing for the next little bit and a June 5th action. So for listeners, keep it locked here on CAUT. We'll be right back. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast. 
as well as over 40 other excellent shows. Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast route anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Also, I'm going to quick plug here that you can still get your tickets to the May 18th event called Tune In, and you can still get your 50% discount if you use the code Green Majority. Go to greenmajority.ca slash tune in and come hang out with us. It'll be a lot of fun. A night like this will exist nowhere else. That is my promise to all of you who come. But back to our interview with Katie Perfit and Stephen Thomas of the David Suzuki Foundation. We spent the last 30 minutes or so talking about, you know, clean electricity and how to message it. And so the last 10 here is going to be mostly about what you specifically are doing at the David Suzuki Foundation and how you sort of see the next stages. So as an opening to that, can you talk to us about where your strategy is headed you know, over the next next year or so? Yeah, would love to. So again, just want to acknowledge how much amazing work has been done. So pointing to the Clean Power Pathways reports, if any of you listening are want to nerd out on this, would highly recommend checking them out. You can find them on the website, davidsuzuki.org. Check that out. There's been amazing work done in terms of like research and, and modeling on how we get to 100% renewable electricity by 2035. And Stephen has been leading that work. And now we're really in a moment where we're s- switching gears and we're going to be moving in a at a much different pace and a really different way. And the reason for that is that the federal government has promised these clean electricity regulations, which they want to bring in to achieve net zero emissions by 2035. That is their goal with these clean electricity regulations. And I might let, you know, Stephen jump in to talk about the nuance of what net means. But for us, it's really like, how do we use this moment around this regulatory process to activate as many people as possible who feel really strongly about the need for ambitious justice-based climate solutions across Canada? Yeah. How do we get them involved and how do we use that momentum and that people power strategically so that we can win as much as possible through this regulatory process? So that in a nutshell is what we're headed towards. We think these regulations, the draft version of them are going to drop in June or July. The timeline keeps getting pushed back, but that's what we're aiming for. Usually with you know regulations like this, there's a consultation process that gives us a big opportunity for public to get the public involved. And then those comments go back and then the, the government, you know, puts, they put all their heads together and they figure out what they need to adjust. And then we'll see the final version of these regulations. But yeah, I think what shakes out really depends on our ability to mobilize. And Stephen, maybe I think the nuance of like what net means might be useful for listeners in terms of whose voices are at the table for this and who's vying for what. Yeah, so for 
us, it's so important not to get caught in that net. And that's the trap that's laid in so many of these climate policies is not getting all the way to zero emissions, but to get kind of sort of close and then buy offsets or sneak out of actually doing the work of reducing emissions in, in some other way. And we feel that the the electricity sector, among everything, is the if as hard as it is, the easiest sector to actually get to zero emissions. We think we have all the tools that we need with wind and solar and energy storage to really get this done. We think that's where the most benefits come from. So we're we're really excited about that. And to build on what you were saying, Katie, in terms of the public engagement piece, like I think it's it's working. I think that's what I was trying to say when we were talking about the budget. I wasn't saying like there are pieces of this that are good because I think our work is over. We are just getting started here. But the budget this year would have been worse without the 18,000 people that have already signed petitions calling for 100% zero emissions electricity. It would have been worse without the dozens of folks who called their MPs. It would have been worse without the hundreds of folks who came to webinars and rallies and the, the work that just our group has been doing on clean electricity. And again, we're just getting started with this. So what I'm so excited about is the work that Katie and everyone is pulling together for our event on June 5th, but really for work across the summer, where as we try and make this whole conversation on energy transitions and getting to renewable energy for all more democratic, hearing from more folks, getting folks more involved is really, really exciting for me because that's where the, the real magic happens. So keen to hear more about this June 5th event. And then also just, Stephen, you mentioning like as we go into this summer that will hopefully be, I don't know, punctuated by by campaigning work, not just on clean energy specifically, but on various files across sort of like the climate movement. I'm thinking about like just transition work that's happening, emissions cap work that's happening. There's there's all kinds of moving moving pieces, but it's also sort of, I don't know, I'm kind of making an estimate here, but it's going to also be another summer that's characterized by what I'm anticipating will be heat waves and forest fires and potentially a whole lot of grief and disaster for a whole lot of people. And that continues to sort of in increasingly it's hanging over over our summers every year as, as they roll around. So Katie, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about specifically that June 5th event that people should gear up for and plug into, but also maybe, yeah, as somebody who does live in a rural community, if, if it makes sense to to tie in that piece of our, around these increasingly stressful summers, then please feel free to do that otherwise. Yeah, no, you're so right, Lauren. And I I think our ability to, yeah, to withstand climate impacts really hinges on our ability to get our electricity sector right, as Stephen said before. And so, I mean, one of the things that I remember from last summer, I'm not, I'm not in BC, I'm in a rural community west of Ottawa. And I remember in our town's kind of like Facebook group, there were people reaching out saying like, hey, I'm not able to afford a air conditioner, even if I wanted to, my landlord won't let me put one in the window. And people were saying, well, just go to the beach. Well, the bacteria levels in the water were so high because of how hot it was. And this to me is like inherently a, a, an issue of power, not only, you know, the political political system power, but like the way that we power our lives and the inherent inequity in that. And so, yeah, I think if you are thinking a lot about anti-poverty work or you're working with at-risk communities, like this work is about you. It is about the people you work with. Like this is so important. And so 
what I'm really excited about right now is that I feel like the clean electricity regulations and this whole political process that's happening nationally is actually giving us an opportunity to weave together so much local frontline work that has been happening across the country for so long. I'm coming into this and, you know, I've been with the David Suzuki Foundation for a couple months now and just get to meet like such incredible grassroots organizers who are doing amazing work. So I'm thinking about the folks with Electrify 613 who are helping households and renters figure out how they can have more energy efficient homes. And I'm thinking about the Ottawa Renewable Energy Co-op that has been installing solar panels and wind turbines and getting people engaged in that work. We had what Stephen mentioned, we had a virtual rally a few weeks ago where we got to hear from uh, Caro Briolet at Climate Action Network Canada and also Quantima Cole Sayers from Clean Energy BC. And we got to just hear about like so much local on the ground work in Indigenous and remote communities that, that are really leading the energy transition. And so to me, that makes me feel so hopeful and is why we've been so impactful to this point is that there are so many people who are already doing this work. And it really is about like bringing it all together and being behind one banner, which is what June 5th is really about. On June 5th, it's a Monday, we're going to be on the Hill and we're going to bring the voices of the tens of thousands of people who have already signed petitions in support of the transition to 100% renewable electricity by 2035. We're going to bring those names. We're going to bring some really fantastic speakers. And for people who know me, you're going to be really not surprised at all that we're also going to have some great big artwork there. So banners. Yeah, there's going to be some cool iconography on display. So there's just going to be a lot there to celebrate and like really bring to the doorsteps of our elected leaders. So I'm really excited about that. There's going to be more to come. We'll be able to share some information about that event when we have the RSVP page up. But it really is about marking this moment ahead of the release of these regulations to show that there is broad public support across Canada for the government to like do good for people through this clean electricity regulation. And yeah, really put people first and not the polluters and corporations that have been able to get blank checks from the federal government for so long. So that's that's really what June 5th is about. That's incredible, Katie. For Ottawa-based listeners who might be considering going, if you got to make it out, if for no other reason than Katie's art, for <laughs> folks should see if they can find a picture. Maybe we should find a picture of this incredible fire hydrant that Katie made several years ago for an event that I think was happening around an election, but it was like, it was, I want to say like 15 or 20 feet tall. It was this huge wooden fire hydrant and it looked so good. So, so you got to come out for the movement art, if nothing else. Well, uh, it's going to be painted by a lot of people. So it's not just my (laughs) stuff, but yes, yes. Love a good prop. And if I can paint another picture for our dear listeners, I'm not promising anything, but it's possible that you show up to this event on June 5th and you meet people who you might be organizing with and like be friends with for more than 10 years. And then in 2033, you'll be on a podcast talking about it. So it could happen. I'm saying. God, not even have podcasts in 2033. Maybe it'll be some other wild technology that we'll be using. Either way, it'll be 2033. Think of how how close we'll be to that 100% renewable electricity goal we'll be like we'll be right there we'll be right on come to the party when we get to 100 renewables it'll be fun 
Now that will be a party. So thank you both so much for being here. This has been Katie Perfit and Stephen Thomas of the David Suzuki Foundation chatting about a whole wide range of things, but it's been so lovely to chat with the two of you. It is our tradition on the show to give our guests the last word. So you're speaking to our general audience and yeah, take it away. Okay, I'm going to go first because I want Stephen to have the last word. Okay, I want everyone listening to go into the show notes because they'll be there. I need you to go and sign our petition. And I don't, I feel so weird that is the ask that I'm making to you as someone who is an organizer. But with the nature of this campaign, like I need to be able to, and Stephen needs to be able to get in contact with you to make sure that you know about what's coming up in the campaign. So I am urging you to go and sign the petition. And when you do, you're going to be invited to do a whole bunch of other kinds of actions with us. And yeah, we need you in this. Like we've won, we've come so far. And the thing we really need to do now is like institutionalize this win and like get it into regulations. Like we need to win that this year and we need to use this window of opportunity. So please sign the petition and then do all of the other actions that we're going to be emailing you about as well. Hard to top that. I'm sure I've said this already, but this work is about relationships and this conversation just really crystallizes that for me. So for anyone who is listening, who's doing this work, stick up and care for one another because we'll be doing this for a long, long time. Sign petitions and hold your friends close. What two perfect notes to end on. Thanks so much, friends. Thank you. 